Well, we are continuing to plug through Mark's gospel, and we are at a crucial watershed point this morning. We're right at the halfway point, and Mark's gospel very, very equally divides into two halves. And the first half of Mark's gospel has been concerned with one question. The question of who is Jesus? That's been what's dominated everything. It's been behind the scenes. It's been the underlying question that all of his teaching and everything he does has been seeking to answer. But you know, we as readers have have known who Jesus is from the very beginning because Mark told us in the very first verse. In Mark 1.1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's been obvious to us as the readers, but we've seen that the disciples have been very slow to see who Jesus is and to really understand the ramifications of that. And so their quest for understanding comes to somewhat of a climax in this passage. And so this morning, whether you are here and you are utterly convinced that you know who Jesus is, or whether you're utterly skeptical, whether you really doubt that Jesus is who he says he is, this passage speaks to you. Because it addresses us and it tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that we all, regardless of who we are, have an inability to clearly see who Jesus is. We all, to some degree, have spiritual blindness. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is able to give sight to the blind. So would you please stand as we read Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. Mark 8, 1 through 30. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and then were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? O Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We ask most especially that you would show us Jesus, that you would open the eyes of our hearts not only to see, but to understand. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1986, my dreams were displayed before me on the silver screen. So you think back to the summer of 1986, you remember that that's when Top Gun came out. Yeah, Maverick and Goose and Iceman. And I, like, like I'm sure millions of others and probably many of you, had always dreamed of being a fighter pilot. And, and this, this movie portrayed the glory of that. You know, the, the jet, the motorcycle, the girl, everything. And I thought, man, this would be really cool. But yet there was, there was, some, there was a haunting part to this dream for me. Because I knew, even then, that it could never be a reality. I had bad eyes. I had bad eyes. And so I knew, even then, I was never going to be Maverick. I could never go be a fighter pilot. Now, many of you share, share my frustration with having poor eyesight. You know how it complicates sports. It, it makes reading more difficult. It makes camping a, a total hassle. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to, to take contacts out when you're on the trail or you're camping. And, and I know some of you are going to tell me about disposable contacts or extended wear. But, but I have to wear these hard lenses that you can't take out. And it's just, it's a hassle. Having poor eyesight brings frustration all the time. And this passage is telling us that we have a spiritual problem 
related to our eyesight, that we have spiritual blindness as well. And it causes us similar frustrations because we're unable to adequately see things and process them and understand them and live in light of them. And most importantly, we're unable to see clearly the most important thing. The most important thing is who Jesus is. That's what, that's what the first half of Mark has been all about. And if we could just get that one thing, it would change so much of our lives. I mean, if, if you think about it, if you think about it, that one understanding of Jesus being the Son of God that Mark tells us very clearly at the very beginning, if we really, if we really grasp that and what that means we would not be anxious anymore. I mean, think about it. Economic problems wouldn't distress us to the extent that we do, that they do, if we remembered that Jesus is the king of kings, that he has all the treasure in the world at his disposal, and that he cares for us. Our, our health and all kinds of other problems that we face wouldn't lead us to such anxiety if we remember that God is, that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who is able and powerful to care for us and to care for our souls. If we could just see and remember and understand that Jesus is the great rescuer and the deliverer, our hearts would be calmed. It would ease so much of our worry, but, but that's the challenge for us. The challenge is that we see so much and yet we don't see clearly, and we don't understand it all, and we fail to apply what we've seen. And we might be inclined to think that our experience would, would convince us and remind us of the truth of who Jesus is and enable us to see clearly. For those of us that aren't, aren't sure that Jesus is who he is, we might think that more evidence would convince our hearts of who he is. But the problem is that experience and evidence are inadequate to deal with our spiritual blindness. Why is this so? Well, first of all, it's because we fail to remember our experiences that we've seen and the evidence that we've seen. Look at the very first verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Mark writes, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he says again, because this is, this is like part two. This is like a rerun. The, almost the exact same thing has just taken place two chapters back, when Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 with five loaves. You know, and it, it almost seems unbelievable that these disciples are bewildered at this situation that confronts them. It almost seems unbelievable that, that they would be wondering how, how these people are going to be provided for. I mean, don't they remember? Don't they remember what Jesus just did? And I, I got to be honest, as, as a preacher, it's, it's very tempting to want to just kind of skip over this passage because... It's almost exactly the same as the feeding of the 5,000. And, and the message is almost the same. 
But think about this. Think about this. Mark, Mark was not only a recorder of the gospel, but he's also a teacher. And Mark had all kinds of things that Jesus did and that Jesus said that he didn't write down. You know, we only get a fraction of the things that happen. And Mark chose to devote space to this particular event right after the feeding of the 5,000. So he must have had something that he wanted us to understand from this. So that's why we are looking at it as well. So once again, we see Jesus is presenting his disciples with a problem of feeding a great crowd. And once again, the disciples are bewildered. They're beside themselves. They have no idea how these people are going to get fed. And we say, how is this possible? Don't they remember? But what Mark is teaching us is the great extent of spiritual blindness. We've already seen the feeding of the 5,000. What should the disciples have, have known? What should they have remembered? What should they have understood? They should have remembered that, that Jesus is the bread of life. That Jesus is the one who can feed his people in the wilderness. That Jesus is able to supply all of our needs with great abundance. They should have got that. They should have taken that and they should have applied it to this present situation. Once again, Jesus has them assess their resources. And once again, their own resources are incredibly meager. Seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And once again, Jesus takes these meager resources and he feeds a huge crowd with a ton left over. The disciples should have gotten something else. They should have also understood something very important from what was different in the feeding of the 4,000 from the 5,000. You know, if we look back at chapter 7, verse 31, we remember that Jesus and the disciples are in the Decapolis, this Gentile region of 10 cities that's mostly pagan. And so it's very likely that this crowd of 4,000 is made mostly up of Gentiles and not Jews. So the rich theological point that the disciples should have got is that Jesus is willing to feed the Gentiles as well. Jesus has just, has just ministered to a Gentile woman who has, who has asserted that even the Gentile dogs can be fed from the children's bread, from the crumbs that fall from the table. And here Jesus is lavishing the Gentiles with bread, giving them more than they can even eat. And so the disciples should have seen, wow, Jesus isn't just the Savior of the Jews, but he's the Savior of the whole world. But they didn't get that. They couldn't see clearly at this point. I don't, I don't know if any of you have, have the, the regular experience of being enlightened to something that, that you have seen and heard over and over again. Like going to the dentist. You go to the dentist and, and if you're like me, you go, wow, flossing? That's a, that is a, that's a great idea. I should give that a try. And so we eagerly take home the free sample. We go, that was nice of him to give me this. And we stick it in the drawer with the 20 other free samples from the last decade, and we forget until six months later. We know it's important. We know what it's there for. It's not that we don't understand the concept. It's just that we we don't think about it or we don't apply it in the morning or in the evening when we're brushing our teeth. And maybe some of you do. 
and maybe you'll avoid me now. <laughs> but I mean, really, how many times have you forgotten something that you've seen before, that you've understood? How many times have you, have you failed to act on something and God, I can't believe, I can't believe I did it again. Why do I keep doubting? Why, why do I continue to doubt whether God will care for me now? I know he's cared for me in the past. Why do I doubt that he'll care for me now? Why do we get so anxious? Why do we get so concerned? Why do we think that, that maybe God's not willing to help us this time? What this passage calls us to do is to remember what we have seen about Jesus and who he is and his ability to provide for all of our needs and to apply that day by day, in the morning and in the evening to the situations that arise in our lives. To remember his care because we've seen that he, he has given everything, that he's given his own son for us. How would he not also graciously give us all things? But we don't see because we forget our experience and the evidence that we have. Others of us don't see clearly because we're wearing the wrong lenses. You know, if you've worn glasses or you've worn contacts for many years, you can become convinced that you're seeing everything clearly. I mean, of course, officer, I can see, I can see clearly. I've got glasses on, don't I? Glasses that I got 25 years ago. It's very, it's very easy for us to slip into a mode of assuming that we understand everything. And that's what happens with these Pharisees. Look at verse 11. Jesus meets this group of Pharisees that, who assume that they understand everything clearly. They sh- they're sure that they know exactly what the Messiah is supposed to be like. And so they are sure that Jesus is not him. In verse 11, they demand a sign from Jesus. Now, Jesus had done many miracles. He'd done all kinds of things that showed his power. But it it was always possible for them to take the evidence of who Jesus was and to come up with some other explanation for what it could mean. They could say things like, well, sure, he healed that person, but he was utilizing the power of demons to do it. They always had another explanation. And so they asked for a sign. And they're not really asking for another miracle. What they're asking for is some kind of affirmation from heaven that the sign is what Jesus says it is. And you know what? That's actually a very biblical notion. You know, if we look through the Old Testament, God actually tells people, hey, there's good prophets and there's bad prophets. And there are wrong signs, signs that you shouldn't believe. And so those have to be tested. So the desire for authentication isn't in and of itself bad. But the thing that's bad is their hearts. Look at their motive. Mark tells us that their motive is to test him. They're not open to being convinced. They're not expecting a sign that will convince them of who Jesus is. All they're trying to do is discredit Jesus. And so they ask for a sign. They ask for Jesus to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the Messiah. 
But you know what? That's not the way that faith works. The Pharisees have these presuppositions at work in them. They have these preconceived ideas of who the Messiah is supposed to be. They're so sure that they are seeing clearly that they automatically filter out anything that might contradict what they already have committed themselves to. They know that the Messiah is supposed to be a a political power figure. They know that he is supposed to come in and overthrow the oppressors, that he is supposed to take down the Roman government. And here is Jesus walking around Galilee being humble and healing people and serving people and frankly being fairly, looking fairly weak and meek in his, in his attitude towards the oppressor. And so they know, they just know that, that this can't be our guy. And so anything that comes to them, any evidence that comes to them gets filtered through their lenses and they automatically dismiss it. Anything that, that doesn't fit in their categories, they write off. They're unwilling to examine their grid to see if really their grid might need a little tweaking. They're really very close-minded, these Pharisees are. And you've got to wonder, how much evidence would have been enough? What would have been enough to convince these guys, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus was who he says he was? And we can think of all kinds of things. And, and we might even think of the greatest thing ever, the greatest sign, Jesus rising again from the dead. And yet, Luke tells us a parable about this very thing. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is in hell, or he's in in Hades. And he asks that Lazarus be sent back from the grave to his family to warn them. Because he says, if they see someone who's come back from the dead, then they will believe. And you know what the answer is? The answer is, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the Bible, then they won't believe even if someone should rise again from the dead. That doesn't mean that the resurrection isn't fantastic evidence for the truth of who Jesus is. It's the greatest evidence that we have. But that evidence was around for all kinds of people in the first century and for the last 20 to see. And still... There's an ability to filter that out, to come up with other explanations. So more evidence isn't, isn't the answer. And what the Pharisees are really trying to do by asking for that is to excuse their own willingness to believe. They're asking Jesus to prove himself. And yet the question is, what are they doing with the evidence that they already have? And so Jesus refuses to give them a sign. But why? I mean, why would Jesus be so unwilling to give these people who are asking for a sign, why would he be so willing to give them a sign? I mean, is, is Jesus here saying that, that faith is just something that we leap out into blindly? Is he saying this is what Christianity is? Don't worry about evidence. Don't worry about reason. Just, just jump. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's already, given, he's already given tons of signs. But the Pharisees have their glasses on. 
that distort everything that they see. And what they really need is not another sign. They need to have their glasses ripped off. Some of you have probably been to a picnic and you've been in a place where where parents are feeding kids and there's hamburgers and there's hot dogs and there's cupcakes and kids are sitting on the ground and there's always a kid who's sitting there next to his dog. And every time the parent gives the kid some food, the dog gobbles it up. He gets a hot dog and the dog gets the hot dog. He gets a cupcake and, and the dog gets a cup, the cupcake. And eventually the parents get tired of feeding the dog. And so they say to their son, son, I'm happy to give you a cupcake, but you've got to come sit at the table. And the child starts crying because he doesn't want to sit at the table. He wants to sit on the ground with his friends. But the parents are unwilling to continue to give hot dogs and cupcakes to get gobbled up by the dog. And what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is, look, unless you're willing to come to the table, you'll never be fed. You'll never be nourished because you've got this giant dog of unbelief sitting next to you that's going to gobble everything up. So unless you're willing to step away from that dog of unbelief, you're going to go hungry. And the Pharisees won't come to the table. And so Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples and he leaves them. They want him to prove himself by removing every other possible answer, every other possible explanation. It's like if you've ever played one of those trivia games that used to be big at like TJI Fridays and places like that where uh, it's trivia and you've got a little controller and, and there's, there's a question and there's like four or five choices and the wrong answers slowly start disappearing. And it's, it's like you can imagine the situation where, where you know that answer C is right, but you're scared to press the button. Because what if you're wrong? You don't, you don't want to press the button for answer C. What you really want is to wait for every other choice to be eliminated. So you can know that, hey, beyond a shadow of a doubt, answer C is right. But if you played that game before, you know that you don't get any points if you wait till the right answer is the only one left. And in a situation where you've been given abundant evidence that answer C is the right answer, you've got to commit to it. And that's the way it is with Christianity. It's not just that we need more evidence. It's that we need to examine our hearts. We've got to recognize that we've got certain lenses on that cause us to filter the evidence in a certain way. We've got to realize that we're not neutral observers. We've got an agenda. We've got a very strong agenda, despite the fact that we, that we pretend to be neutral and, and open to everything. The reality is that we, like the Pharisees, don't like answer C. We don't want answer C to be the right one. These guys didn't want answer C to be it. They didn't want Jesus to be the Christ. And so they continue to read the evidence in any way possible so that they don't have to deal with who Jesus is. And so he leaves them. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What that tells us is that more evidence 
will not be enough. Evidence is great and it's necessary and we need it, but it is not enough. We need to be changed. We need to recognize our own heart agendas and the fact that we really don't want Jesus to be the Son of God in many ways because if Jesus is who he says he is, that means that we lose control. That means that we've got to completely reorient all of our lives around this new kingdom agenda. And we're not sure that we really want that. This also means the fact that evidence isn't enough. It also means that that you'll never be fully assured of anything until you commit to something. Not a blind leap of faith. Not just jumping out into, into nowhere without any kind of evidence. But you'll never fully know that a bridge will sustain you until you walk out on it. And so after you've examined it, after you've seen many people walk across that bridge, after you have have felt it, after you've seen the specks, and you're sure that it's strong enough, the only way that you can really be assured is to actually walk out on that bridge yourself. That's the only way that you can really be assured of anything. But our problem is that we don't see everything clearly. And we're not even aware of our own spiritual blindness. In fact, most of us are probably thinking, I'm glad I'm not at all like the Pharisees who are so dull and blind. And I'm glad I'm not like the disciples because they really don't get it. But look at verses 14 through 21. What does Jesus mean when he talks to the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? What he's talking about is the fact that that the Pharisees and Herod are opposing Jesus and opposing his message and that they're spiritually blind. And Jesus is saying they're like leaven that when it gets put into a batch of dough permeates the whole batch and it begins to influence everything and it begins to shape everything. And what Jesus doesn't want is for his disciples to be influenced by the unbelief that is all around them. But they don't even get the metaphor. They're not even thinking in those categories. And so they hear Jesus's metaphor very literally and they start worrying about not having enough bread to eat and so jesus rebukes them he says why are you talking about bread don't you understand don't you get it guys are your hearts hardened having eyes do you not see i mean having ears do you not hear don't you remember and he's alluding to Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 that he's done before where Isaiah talks about people having eyes and not seeing and ears and not hearing. But previously, Jesus has applied that to the outsiders. And now, Jesus is saying that about his own disciples, saying that they don't hear and they don't understand. And so he reviews the stats for them of the two feedings. And they know exactly what Jesus has done. They remember the number of loaves, the number of fish, the number of leftovers. They've seen everything, but they haven't seen clearly. And they haven't understood because understanding entails applying. And they failed to apply what they've seen. In verse 21, Jesus says, Do you not yet understand? And the reality is that they, they don't. 
But that verse and that question is pregnant with hope for the disciples and for all of us sitting here in this room because Jesus says, do you not yet understand? There is hope for them. There's hope that understanding will come. And so we, we like the disciples, need to recognize that, that we really don't understand everything. That we don't see everything perfectly clearly. That oftentimes we see men like trees walking. But the reality is that Jesus is able to open our eyes to help us understand more clearly. And we see that in the next section. You know, if we were to ask, why is, why is this healing miracle inserted right here? The answer is because, because Jesus has just been dealing with the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and then the spiritual blindness of the disciples. And now he heals somebody who is literally blind. And it's a very unusual healing. It takes two touches. Jesus touches the man and he says, do you see anything? And the man says, well, I see men, but, but they look to me like trees walking. And so Jesus touches him a second time, and then he sees everything clearly. Why is this like that? I mean, why, I mean, why does Jesus touch this guy twice? Why does it not seem to completely work the first time? I mean, obviously, it's not a lack of Jesus' power. Jesus has healed all kinds of people with just one touch. He's trying to teach us something. He's trying to teach us that spiritual blindness isn't cured like that. But it's oftentimes progressive. When our eyes are healed, we begin to see things. But yet we continue to wrestle with with nearsightedness. And we continue to forget the things that we have seen. And so now we get to the climax of the first half of Mark. And Jesus and his disciples around the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? That's the point that Jesus has been trying to get across to them the whole time through everything that he's been doing. Who do people say that I am? And they come up with various answers. They say, some people say, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. All of the answers kind of revolve around this idea of Jesus being a prophet. And that's, that's a positive that's a positive thing. Being a prophet's a positive thing, but, but it's inadequate. It's not sufficient because Jesus is more than a prophet. And they've got to know who he is. See, prophets point to something else. Prophets teach. And in other religions, the founder or the main leader is intent upon people understanding certain teaching. And the prophets point to a, to a teaching, or they point to something else. But Jesus is saying, no, all the arrows come to me. In Christianity, it's all about me. You've got to deal with me and who I am, and that's the most fundamental thing. And it might seem incredibly arrogant, but Jesus is saying, that's the most important thing. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just somebody that you can admire. You've got to, you've got to, Deal with what I'm saying here. You can accept it or you can reject it, but you can't put me in this other category of being a prophet or a good teacher. 
So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter unleashes one of the greatest confessions in the Bible. He says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the one who is coming to deliver his people. Jesus has opened Peter's eyes, hasn't he? So that he can see who Jesus is. And Jesus has to do that. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so we've seen this great miracle of sight, spiritual sight being given to the spiritually blind. And we might be inclined to think that from here on out, everything will change and everything will be different and the disciples will begin to see everything and they'll begin to apply everything very clearly. But unfortunately, that's not the case. See, immediately after this, in the next few verses even, just after Jesus tells them who he is, he tells them what he's going to do. He says, yep, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to die. And Peter doesn't like that. And so he rebukes Jesus and Jesus turns and rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. Just a few verses after Peter has had his eyes open and made this great confession, Jesus is calling him Satan. And towards the end of Mark, when Jesus is about to fulfill his great mission, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his betrayers come, the people who want to have him killed. And Mark records for us some of the most disheartening words about Jesus' followers. 1450, he says, And they all left him and fled. And at the very end of Mark, after Jesus has died and has been raised, the women come to inspect the tomb. And the last verse of the whole gospel says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The last word of Mark's gospel is afraid. And so it seems very negative. How is this failure to give us any hope? or encouragement? And the answer is because Jesus doesn't rescue us because we see him clearly. Jesus rescues us in order that we might see him clearly. And he is incredibly patient with us when we fail to see or when we fail to remember the things that we've seen when we fail to apply that knowledge to our situations. And Jesus knows that sometimes one miraculous feeding isn't enough. Sometimes multiple feedings are necessary. And so this morning we have the rich privilege of having Jesus feed us at his table. We have the rich privilege of being reminded by Jesus that he is able to meet all of our needs, that he is the bread of life, that by feeding upon him, we can truly have life, that he's the one that welcomes us to his table, that he cares for us, that he loves us. And this week, as we go out, we're going to forget that, and we're going to fail to remember that, and we're going to fail to apply it to our situations And so Jesus is so kind and compassionate to us that he's going to feed us again next week and the next week 
and the next week and the next week until he comes. Because his great desire is that we see him as the one who can meet all of our needs. And he's willing to remind us over and over and over again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you remind us of your care for us, that you know that we are frail, that we, you know that we are slow to understand. You know that we forget the things that we have seen, and yet you comfort us. And so this morning we pray that you would comfort us as we come to your table, that you would confirm to our hearts the reality that you died to bring us life, that you died to welcome us to your table and that we are children of yours, that you will always feed and that you will always care for. Strengthen our weak faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.